Welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm your host, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice. As we approach the end of 2022, it's hard not to feel a sense of nostalgia for the tax year that has been particularly if you've been tuned into the developments around the creditability of foreign taxes. We open the year with a bang, the final foreign tax credit, or FTC regulations, were published in the Federal Register on January 4th. This was met with a lack of cheer from many taxpayers. In particular, the tax community raised a hue and cry regarding the requirement in the regulations that a foreign tax to be creditable must permit full recovery of significant costs or expenses, except for certain disallowances that are consistent with those found in the code. Not only was this provision subject to many and sundry interpretations, but it also created a cliff effect. One euro of significant expense disallowed with a bad purpose could render billions of euros of foreign taxes non-creditable. Also of great concern was the regulation's treatment of withholding taxes on royalties, which taxes are creditable under the regs only if, for purposes of determining the income subject to the tax, the foreign tax regime sources the gross income from royalties based on place of use. To address these and other concerns, in the last week of July, Treasury and the IRS released technical corrections to the final FTC regs which provided some relief by expanding the principles-based exception. However, these corrections did not eliminate entirely the uncertainty and retain the rule's cliff effect, nor did they address taxpayers' concerns regarding withholding taxes on royalties. The government listened to comments and, operating under the legal maxim of third time's the charm, issued proposed regulations last month in November that would amend the final FTC regs. Did the government give us a gift just in time for the holidays or a lump of coal? To answer this question and others, we are joined by friends of the podcast, Seth Green and Quinn Hune, both principals in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice. Seth and Quinn, welcome back. Thanks, Gary. It's great to be here. I'm also happy to be here. So... To combat the proliferation of digital services taxes, DSTs, and other novel and extraterritorial taxes, Treasury and the IRS set out to update the regulations under sections 901 and 903, which provide the rules for determining whether a foreign tax that is a net income tax or an in lieu of tax is creditable against a taxpayer's U.S. tax liability. These rules had been largely unchanged since their adoption in the early 80s. Under the old regs, a foreign tax was creditable if its predominant character was that of an income tax in the U.S. sense. A tax's predominant character was that of an income tax if it was likely to reach net gain in the normal circumstances in which it applies. There are a lot of squishy terms in these regs, predominant, likely, normal circumstances. Indeed, the regulations would have required an empirical analysis to determine if, under normal circumstances, a foreign tax reached net income. 
In the final regs, the government squashed the squishiness. In lieu of a predominant character test, the final regs provide that a net income tax is creditable only if it satisfies the net gain requirement, which is in turn comprised of four requirements, the realization, gross receipts, cost recovery, and attribution requirements. Under the final regs, whether a foreign tax satisfies each of these requirements is based on the terms of the foreign tax law governing the computation of the tax base and not an empirical analysis of the normal operation of the tax law. As I mentioned earlier, much of the consternation around these regs has centered on the cost recovery requirement. When originally introduced, the disallowance of a deduction for all or a portion of one or more of costs considered significant under the regs, that is those relating to capital expenditures, interests, rents, royalties, wages, or other payments for services and R&E would result in a failure to meet the cost recovery requirement unless the foreign disallowance was consistent with the principles underlying the disallowances required under the code, including disallowances intended to limit base erosion and profit shifting. The regulations provided examples of good disallowances, an interest deduction limitation of 10% of taxable income based on principles similar to those underlying section 163J, a disallowance of interest and royalty deductions in connection with hybrid transactions based on principles similar to those underlying Section 267 CAPE, and disallowances based on public policy considerations similar to those disallowances found in Section 162. Seth, what were stakeholders' concerns about this provision in the final regs? Are there examples of common foreign tax disallowances that were particularly problematic under these rules? Yeah. So, I mean, I think first it's important that we get some lingo straight here, which I think you've been assuming, but I'm going to make it clear to our readers. When we talk about the final regs, we're going to talk about the final regs as they were initially finalized. Then we'll move on and talk about the technical correction that came out in July, which is currently still now the law. And then we'll move on to the proposed regs. So final regs, technical correction, proposed regs. Under the final regs, it was very clear that, as you said, we have a kind of a hair trigger cliff effect, that once you have an item that's described as a significant category of expense, so interest, other forms of cost recovery, so capital expenditures, salaries, there are these things that are called out as per se significant expenses. The regs told us that you could be okay if all or a portion of that significant category was disallowed as long as, and then they told us that the as long as was one of these things that looks like a U.S. rule. So that was telling us, I think, pretty clearly that even a tiny amount of disallowance within a per se category could cause a tax to become non-creditable unless the disallowance was tied to a principle you could find under the U.S. tax law. That requires kind of a remarkable level of similarity to U.S. tax law. And an example of something that I think a lot of people were worried about and there was a lot of hand-wringing about would have been, for example, significant numbers of foreign tax systems put at least restrictions, if not flat out disallowances on compensation paid with equity. So stock-based comp broadly. 
There are different rules in different countries. Sometimes it only matters if you're physically delivering share certificates. Sometimes it covers also notional plans. Sometimes it only matters if you're delivering your own stock and you can deliver stock of your parent corporation without being caught by that problem. There are a variety of rules in different jurisdictions that operate differently. But in each case, that is a cost, salary, paying your employees, that is being disallowed in one way, shape, or form to different extents, and for which it is hard to find a very close match under the U.S. tax law. So even if you discover, as we have in many of these countries for perhaps understandable reasons, there isn't much stock-based comp being paid because if you could get a deduction when you pay people in cash and you don't get a deduction when you pay people with stock, you're more likely to pay them with cash. Even if there isn't much stock-based comp being paid, you worry that this rule could invalidate the entire corporate tax system, which seems kind of crazy, but it is where we were under the final regs. Seth, government officials publicly on panels insisted that taxpayers might be reading the language too narrowly. How did Treasury and the IRS amend the regs through the technical corrections to broaden this interpretation? And what uncertainties did that new language resolve and what still remained after? Well, so they basically did one major thing. They tinkered a little bit more around the edges as well. But the one major thing they did was to, instead of seeming to tie things more closely to U.S. principles, they basically told us that BEPS is a principle underlying the U.S. tax code, although they didn't tell us what they meant by BEPS. And I'll foreshadow a little bit by saying we're still in that world. They also then actually opened the door arguably a lot by saying that public policy concerns, and that's all they said, public policy concerns could also be a valid reason for a deduction disallowance. Now, that last one arguably kicked the door open all the way because I think you could very credibly say if a legislature enacts a provision, whether it's a tax provision or otherwise, whether it's a deduction disallowance or some other tax provision, anytime a legislature enacts a statute, they are presumably doing so for some reason of their perceived public policy. So taken to its logical extreme, the technical correction basically gutted the rule and said everything's fine. Of course, we're taught not to interpret exceptions to swallow the entire rule, which suggests to us that maybe we shouldn't be reading that public or should not, when that rule was enacted as part of the technical correction, been reading that public policy concerns exception quite that broadly. And that in turn, I think, did lead to continued uncertainty and frustration because we were, in a sense, left with a tension between saying that they gave us no additional guidance whatsoever or saying that the guidance they gave us literally gutted the entire rule. They didn't do much to create a middle ground where we could find our own way to a rational, oh, these are good, those are bad line drawing exercise. Thanks, Seth. And they clearly also didn't get rid of the uh, cliff effect that existed under the final regs. They did not. So, Obviously, even after the technical corrections, concerns with the cost recovery requirement persisted. 
Quinn, how did Treasury and the IRS attempt to address these concerns in the newly issued proposed regs? Thanks, Gary. I think under the proposed regulations as they were issued, the government again tried to walk back perhaps the cliff effect, as Seth had noted, under the interpretation of the final regulations and the technical corrections. When you identify your significant cost or expense, it generally needs to be recovered dollar for dollar unless if there is a disallowance, you can justify the disallowance as being consistent with a principle of a disallowance under the Internal Revenue Code or principles limiting base erosion profit shifting or, as Seth indicated, the public policy as well. Under the proposed regulations, they no longer seem to require that you have to recover dollar for dollar every item of a significant expense. What the regulations do say is that substantially all of the item of significant cost or expense generally needs to be recovered. And the regulations, interestingly enough, don't actually define what substantially all is supposed to mean, except that when you make this determination, you're looking at or basing your determination solely on the terms of the foreign law. What they do provide, helpfully, rather than trying to interpret what substantially all should mean, is there are now a series of safe harbors that they did provide in the proposed regulations. And the safe harbors allow you to say if the foreign disallowance rules with respect to a particular item of significant expense falls within one of these safe harbors, then you don't have to worry about finding a permissible policy rationale for why they have the disallowance rules that they have. There are three types of safe harbors that are described in the regulations. One is that a disallowance of a significant cost or expense is going to be okay if the stated portion of the disallowed item is not greater than 25% of the cost. So very early on after the final regulations and even after the technical corrections, we, along with other tax practitioners and taxpayers, were struggling with whether or not the German trade tax, for example, would satisfy the final regulations and the technical corrections. In part, under the German trade tax, the law there disallows a 25% amount of any interest that is paid by the taxpayer when computing your German trade tax liability. As you can see, that's a disallowance of a significant cost or expense. And you had to previously justify why the German trade tax does what it does and whether it's consistent with a principle under the Internal Revenue Code. With the safe harbor, you can see that the German trade tax disallowing 25% of the interest expense that's paid would fall within at least this particular safe harbor because the stated portion of the disallowed amount is not greater than 25% of the cost. The second safe harbor that they introduced in the proposed regulations relates to a cap on the amount of a significant expense that you can deduct. So the deductibility of items of a single category of a significant cost may be capped, but the capped amount can't be less than 15% of gross receipts gross income, or a similar measure to gross receipts and gross income. The third safe harbor that they introduced would also provide that if the foreign jurisdiction caps the amount that you can deduct of a single category of a significant expense, 
it would also be okay if the cap was not less than 30% of taxable income or some kind of reasonable measure to taxable income. So think of the third cap similar to our 163J interest limitation rules where we cap interest at 30% of EBIT or EBITDA, both being reasonable measures of taxable income. If the foreign jurisdiction had that type of a cap, that would be also okay. The key, I think, for remembering when you're thinking about the safe harbor under the proposed regulation, at least as it relates to the cap, is that they are very clear that the cap has to be limited to a single category of a significant cost. So it has to be that the foreign law says we cap interest deductions, interest being the category, at 15% of gross receipts or 30% of some reasonable measure of taxable income. If the foreign jurisdiction said we cap all categories of expense at 15%, that may not be okay. So it has to be clear that the foreign tax law is, is limiting a specific category of significant costs. And if they commingle those costs, that may be problematic, at least under the proposed regulations as they're drafted. When you noted that outside of the safe harbor, you can determine whether a foreign tax allows the recovery of substantially all of the significant costs and expenses. But by reference solely to the terms of the foreign tax law, if there's a foreign tax whose cost recovery rules don't fit nicely into the requirements of the safe harbor, is there still a way to establish that substantially all the significant costs or expenses are not disallowed based on the terms of the foreign tax law? What if, for instance, a foreign law disallows 50% of the deductions with respect to wages paid to mall Santas? Wages are per se significant expenses, and certainly there is no Scrooge principle in the code. So can we just hire an expert witness to testify that, in fact, Santa wage expense makes up a de minimis amount of all employment expense, even for malls? Is that a way to qualify a tax? Yeah, I think this is where the proposed regs leave you wanting a bit more guidance in this regard. As I said, the regulations did not define what substantially all is intended to mean, other than perhaps by reference to these different safe harbor caps and percentages. But you're not permitted to rely on empirical evidence to prove or justify that the type of cost that is being disallowed on the whole, for all taxpayers that are subject to this corporate income tax that you're trying to test, you can't use empirical evidence to make the judgment that the disallowance of your Santa cost is de minimis, if you will, or not significant that it should prevent the corporate income tax or whatever the taxes that you're looking at from qualifying. I think we all assume Wages paid for mall Santas cannot really be that significant on the whole for services paid by all taxpayers to whom the tax is applied. But when you're looking at the terms of the law, you can clearly sense that 50% is disallowed. So this type of service doesn't fall within the safe harbor because the stated portion of the disallowance has to not be greater than 25%. Obviously, 50 is greater than 25 and so I think if you cannot get comfortable that on the face of that tax law, on the face of the Santa Claus, that you're not 
recovering enough of your expense, then it seems like you still would flunk cost recovery because a portion of your significant expense, these wages, still are being disallowed. I think your saving grace then at that point is you'd have to look at whether or not the disallowance rules under the foreign law are consistent with disallowances you know, that are required under the Internal Revenue Code, or whether it's a case of limiting base erosion, profit shifting, which I think is gonna be hard to justify for mall Santas. And maybe there's a non-tax public policy concern that perhaps you could hang your hat on. That is the framework by which you are analyzing this type of a disallowance under the proposed regulations. And it's not clear whether you could satisfy the substantially all requirement just looking solely at the terms of the foreign law without using some empirical judgment. Maybe someone could lobby Congress to enact such a rule and retroactively render this tax creditable. And and we may also have to worry about the formation of the independent state of the North Pole where these expenses would be significant. (laughs) Okay, let's get back to uh, south of the North Pole. Seth, so if a foreign tax does disallow some portion of a significant expense and the disallowance doesn't satisfy the safe harbor, the foreign tax may still be creditable if it satisfies the principles-based exception, i.e. if the disallowance is consistent with any principle underlying disallowances in the code. How would the uh, proposed regs amend this exception? So as I indicated a little earlier, they keep this notion that BEPS is inherently, preventing base erosion, is inherently a principle that exists within the Internal Revenue Code. They unfortunately do not give us any definition of what we think preventing base erosion means. And kind of going back to my earlier point about public policy, one could in theory argue that any deduction narrows the base and thus any denial of a deduction prevents the erosion of the base. I don't think that's what they meant. It's pretty clear they must have meant something beyond mere disallowance of deduction is preventing base erosion, because again, that would make the rule collapse. But maybe it's enough that it's a cross-border payment and so that it's escaping that tax regime and that we define the base by what is subject to the regime. And so payments in-country can't be disallowed under a base erosion concern, but maybe payments across the border can be. Or maybe if you kind of look at the things that have been historically attracted attention under U.S. rules or under the OECD rules, maybe we're supposed to be focused more on related party payments or on payments to entities in tax havens or interest, particularly mobile classes of income. We're really not given a whole lot of insight into what base erosion means. You know, I think we would get relatively comfortable. In fact, there is an example that if you're enough like a base erosion focused provision in the Internal Revenue Code, like Section 267 Cap A, in the example that you are indeed focused on preventing base erosion. Interestingly, they described the rule that they analogized to 267 Cap A as a foreign country's anti-hybrid regime, but in fact, no place in their description of the regime does it involve hybridity. It simply involves a cross-border payment to a related party that is not 
subject to tax on the other side. So we seem to, through the example, know that if those three factors are all present, cross-border, related party, and not subject to tax on the other side, that seems to be base erosion. You can prevent that. How much further we can go and still be preventing base erosion is, I think, an open question. And I, I don't mean to suggest that is indeed the outer limits of it. It's just the only thing they've told us. The other thing that happened in moving from the technical correction to the proposed regs was they explicitly tied the non-tax public policy concerns that you could rely upon to ones that are similar to those found within the Internal Revenue Code. That being said, they seem to be taking a relatively broad view of similar in this context. I talked earlier about stock-based comp and the disallowance of stock-based comp. They, in fact, have an example that directly addresses a disallowance of stock-based comp. And like the regimes I've talked about, it's a pretty broad-based, if you pay in stock, no deduction rule. And they tell us that rule is okay because it's similar enough to rules like 162M and 280 Cap G, rules that basically focus on highly compensated individuals, which is a little peculiar because I would suggest that the form of the payment that you use to compensate an individual and the level of compensation which you grant to that individual are not principles that are particularly close to one another. But the example says what the example says. I am certainly not in the business of looking a gift horse in the mouth, and I'm pretty comfortable that a limitation on the deduction for stock-based comp will not disqualify a tax from being creditable under these regs. But I am, I admit, left with quite a bit of uncertainty as to how to interpret this notion that the non-tax public policies addressed under foreign law must be similar to non-tax public policies addressed under U.S. law when I see this as an example of similarity. Thanks, Seth. So let's talk about another major source of concern in the final regs. And in lieu of tax or withholding tax, unlike a net income tax, need not satisfy the net gain requirement but it still has to satisfy the attribution requirement, which in the case of withholding tax is satisfied based on source. Quinn, can you describe source-based attribution in general and with respect to royalty specifically? Also, in your experience, what types of withholding taxes are the most problematic for our clients? At a high level, the source-based attribution rules look to the category of gross income that you're dealing with. So the category of gross income could be interest, royalties, rents. And once you identify the category of gross income under the source-based attribution rule, what you're supposed to do is determine whether that category of income has a sourcing rule in the foreign jurisdiction that is reasonably similar to the sourcing rule that corresponds under the Internal Revenue Code And if there's not a direct one-to-one for that category of income, then I assume you would source by analogy to something in the Internal Revenue Code. And so the area where I think we've seen the most impact with respect to withholding taxes and whether or not the foreign withholding tax could satisfy the source-based attribution rule has been around both royalties and services. And as you know, in the 
final regulations and including the technical corrections, the source-based attribution rule generally requires that the foreign law sourcing rules for royalty be imposed or be applied based on where the intangible property is used. And so that would be similar to the Internal Revenue Code. Many foreign jurisdictions, as we were looking at the laws early in the year, we discovered that a lot of countries actually source royalties not by reference to where the intangible property is used, but by reference to whether or not the payor is a resident of the particular jurisdiction. And so early on, a lot of taxpayers were rightly concerned that their royalty withholding taxes that they've been paying may no longer be credible under the final regulations. And the technical corrections didn't modify this part of the rule at all. And they had lobbied, I think, both IRS and Treasury about their concerns. And many of them, I think I understood, were complaining partly because factually, even though the foreign law might have sourced the royalty based on the residence of the payor, they were in fact actually using the intangible property within the jurisdiction. The proposed regulations that were recently released do actually provide modifications around the source-based attribution rules exclusively for a royalty. So they don't touch any other category of gross income other than the royalty. And what they provided was what we'll refer to as the single country license exception. Under the single country license exception, even though the foreign tax law might be inconsistent with the sourcing rules that are applied under the Internal Revenue Code, the foreign withholding tax on the royalty may still be okay, provided that the royalty, it's very clear, I guess, under the written licensing contract with the customer or if it's a related party, clearly specifies that the portion of the royalty that is being paid is paid exclusively for use within the territory. And if it's not exclusively for use within the territory, the contract largely still has to say that you have a specified portion of your royalty that is treated as a royalty and that is paid for use within territory A. And so your contract has to specifically identify both the portion of the royalty and the fact that that portion of the royalty is for use within a particular jurisdiction. And if your contracts do that, then the withholding tax that's imposed with respect to that portion of the royalty may qualify under this single country license and could be eligible then to be credited subject to other limitations of our domestic rules. And again, I think in terms of where we have seen withholding taxes being problematic, it has largely been around both royalties, but the proposed regs provide some helpful guidance, at least for the royalty, but also for services. So a lot of Latin American jurisdictions, a lot of developing jurisdictions, for example, actually will withhold on a subset of services, irrespective of whether the services are performed within the jurisdiction or not. And in those cases, because the Internal Revenue Code sources services largely based on where the service is performed, a lot of these taxes that are imposed on services may not be creditable. And the proposed regulations don't change that outcome at all. So they really only largely provided relief for royalties. So with respect to the relief for royalties, it seems like the requirement 
in the agreement can be very formalistic. Do I have it right that not only does the foreign jurisdiction need to treat the payment as a royalty, but also the agreement itself has to characterize the payment as a royalty? Yes, you are right that both under the proposed regs, technically, the licensing contract needs to specify that the payment is for a royalty and that it's for use in the foreign jurisdiction. And obviously, the foreign jurisdiction needs to regard or treat that payment as a royalty as well in order for you to then be able to source that category, if you will, of income as a royalty and apply this new single country licensing exception to it. Seth, do the proposed regs give some kind of relief with respect to taxes already paid under an agreement? They do to some extent. The payments have to be made pursuant to an agreement that meets these relatively formalistic requirements, but they do give you until May 17th, 2023 to get your agreement into compliance. Now, I want to start by saying, although the regs are not entirely clear on this point. A prohibition against time travel, to my mind, would suggest that we have to simply be conforming an existing contract to the formal requirements of the reg. So if I have a contract which can be broken down by jurisdiction and tell me the exact amount which is due for use in country X as opposed to use in country Y, I can put that into the license. So for example, if I have a license that says a royalty of $5 per widget is due, and I change that into a royalty of $5 per widget sold in country X and $5 per widget sold anywhere else in the world other than country X, I think I am fine. If I have a more complicated formula that doesn't actually allow me to compute the portion of my global royalty, which relates to country X and which relates to country Y, I think there is substantially more question as to whether I can reform that on a retroactive basis. I can obviously change it on a prospective basis, although I'll also point out that change is a business issue and people may not be thrilled with changing it as a business issue, which takes us to even the next point, which is that internal contracts, related party contracts, kind of a pain to do these things, but you can do it retrospectively, forward-looking, whatever. You go to your legal department and you say, we got to open up this contract that we have because it's costing us all these U.S. foreign tax credits. If we don't open it up, and legal may grumble, but they'll do it. But to the extent we have taxpayers who are licensing their IP to unrelated third parties, changing those contracts prospectively, let alone retrospectively, changing those contracts may be challenging because you have to reach out and get the counterparty to agree. And that may be somewhere between difficult and impossible, depending on how many counterparties are involved. Now, the one point that's probably worth pausing on here to observe is that for third-party contracts, although we may have end-user license agreements that read like licenses and royalties, under U.S. tax law principles, at least, foreign tax law gets more complicated, but under U.S. tax law principles, it's not really likely that someone is on a retail basis licensing IP. Retail activity is almost always, in the U.S. sense, either a sale of a copyrighted article, which 
is explicitly carved out of being treated as a royalty under these regs, even if it is treated as a royalty under foreign law, or in some cases, it might be software as a service. There, if foreign law does treat it as a royalty, we don't have the regs telling us that, oh, well, no, U.S. law has to control. So there is a possibility of a situation where foreign law is treating as a royalty something that U.S. law treats as the provision of services, software as a service. And there, these rules could theoretically come into play, and there you could have a kind of retail business where the ability to change these contracts becomes particularly difficult. When do the proposed regulations become effective and can taxpayers rely on them in the interim? The proposed regulations are going to be effective or applicable to foreign taxes paid in tax years ending on or after November 18, 2022. The proposed regulations also indicate that when finalized, taxpayers would have the option to elect to apply the attribution requirement for royalties or the cost recovery rules to short taxable years ending earlier if the rules are applied consistently in each of the categories for either the royalty payment or the cost recovery rules. And then in addition, the regulations are also very helpful in the sense that In the preamble to the proposed regulations, they do make it clear that taxpayers can also elect to apply the proposed regulations even before they are finalized for cost recovery and for the royalty, the single country licensing exception, provided that, again, if a taxpayer does opt into applying the proposed regulations, that they do so consistently for those sections and for all of the relevant years to which the proposed regs would apply. And that's presumably you would just continue to apply those rules if you elected into them until they become finalized, in which case you would then follow whatever the final rules are when the government gets around to it. Thank you, Seth and Quinn, for joining me today to discuss what the proposed regs mean for our clients and the credibility of foreign taxes under sections 901 and 903. And I want to thank you all, our listeners of this podcast, for joining us. This will be our last podcast for the year, and it has been an eventful one. In addition to the FTC regulations, we've seen the enactment in the U.S. of a new minimum tax the corporate AMT and global progress towards the implementation of yet another one, the GLOBE rules under Pillar 2. We'll return next year to explore these and other developments in U.S. international tax. So please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax. Until our next episode, enjoy your holidays and take care.